Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this morning, Lord. We thank you for an opportunity to hear from you and to have an encounter with you. Thank you, Lord, for this time that we've been studying more and more to find out who is Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that we would have an encounter with you and that we would be helped, Lord, that our worship for our Lord Jesus would be strengthened, that we might be able to please you with our thoughts, with our worship, and with our lives. pray, Lord, that you would help me, that you would allow me to be able to speak your word and to preach your word with power and with effectiveness, Lord. pray that you would prepare us as well, Lord, for our hearts as we receive your word. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Gunman kills 12, injures 58 in a theater during the Batman premiere. 26 killed in grade school massacre. Bombs rock Boston Marathon. Three killed, 140 injured. These are the headlines reporting just three of this past year's tragedies in the United States. Cases separated by hundreds of miles. Horrible acts committed by individuals from various walks of life against different communities. And the only commonality between these events is our agreement that they are a byproduct of evil. These seemingly unrelated events convince us that evil can be found everywhere. In a movie theater in Denver, in a classroom in Connecticut, or on a crowded street corner in Boston, no one is safe. Unprovoked darkness twists its ugly head in our direction and swallows up anything good. Everyone is bullied by evil every day. And even if we think that we are unaffected by any of these great tragedies, their marks still pollute our lives. We look at this world and we see sickness and we see death and we see injustice and we wonder whether our faith makes any sense. Just reading the statistics of our Chicago youth killing one another or learning the harsh realities of the sex trade in the U.S. and around the world is enough to make us feel hopeless. So much in this world opposes God and His goodness. And it would seem that nothing brings glory to God. Sin and darkness tower over us like king and queen over this world. And the reality is that no matter where any of us are spiritually, each one of us deep down inside yearns for the goodness that comes from God being glorified. We yearn for a different experience. One where good reigns over evil and light triumphs over darkness. And honestly, when we think about the experiences of this world long enough, most of us will be led to ask the obvious. Is there any hope that we can see or experience God in the midst of all of this? I know here on Sunday mornings we proclaim God's goodness, but what about out there? Is there any hope that we can know God in the midst of all of this darkness? 
Is there any hope that we can know God and experience His glory? One of the goals of the Gospel of John is to answer these kinds of questions. In our passage this morning, we will see that the answer of this question can only be found in the person of Jesus. And so we continue our study this morning on who is Jesus by looking at the Gospel of John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. John chapter 14, 1 through 14. Here in this passage, we find the disciples in a strange place. In Jerusalem, a city each of them had visited countless times, there was a deep discomfort among the disciples. They were here, of course, to celebrate the Passover. It had only been about three years ago when the disciples met Jesus. Just three years ago, the disciples had a completely different outlook on the world. And in many ways they would have probably described the world just as we have. The world was a dark place where suffering took the shape of death, sickness, and injustice. Like many Israelites in their day, the disciples longed, when, longed for the day when God would bring goodness and light into the world. They longed for a time when they could know God intimately and experience His glory on earth. And when they began following Jesus it seemed that much of what they had longed for had come to be. Jesus' message was powerful, and his actions were incredible. Jesus taught his followers that they could live forever and be freed from the power of sin. More than that, Jesus acted in miraculous ways throughout the land of Israel. In Cana, Jesus turned water to wine. On the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus was before more than 5,000, he took a boy's lunch and miraculously fed the multitudes. And do you remember in Bethany, the village where his friends Mary and Martha lived, Jesus did his most incredible miracle. He raised Lazarus from the dead. All of this was an incredible act all of this, his teaching, his miracles were incredible because God was doing an incredible work. Through Jesus, the glory of God was breaking out into the world. But this wasn't why the disciples were troubled. They were troubled because instead of celebrating, Jesus was being sort of a downer. When they came into Jerusalem, he announced to the crowd that he would be lifted up to die. During a meal with his disciples, Jesus told them that one of them would betray them. And when Peter, one of his closest disciples, pledged his unending loyalty, Jesus said that he too would deny him. Death, betrayal, and failure. These were the things Jesus spoke about during his last days with his disciples. Undoubtedly, the disciples wondered if this was the end. If the great demonstration of God's glory on earth would be dissolved because Jesus was leaving them. Look with me at Jesus' response to the disciples, beginning in the first, verses, first four verses of our chapter in 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house 
are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, Don't be discouraged. I am going away so that you will be able to dwell with God. I'm leaving to make a way for you to the Father. Jesus had recognized the anguish that his speech had caused the disciples to have. He knew that they were troubled by all that he was saying, but he says to them, Trust me. Jesus is teaching them that even though what he was saying was difficult, he and the Father were working out their plan for their benefit. He was leaving them for a purpose. And what was his plan? What is this thing that Jesus goes to do? He goes to prepare a place for them in his Father's house. He says, there are many rooms in my Father's house. Now some have imagined that Jesus is comparing eternity with God to an enormous mansion. And yes, this could be helpful in the sense that Jesus' encouragement is that there is plenty of room for all of his disciples and anyone who would believe in him. But more important is it to focus more important is it to focus on the fact that this is the place of God's residence. It is the place where God dwells that Jesus goes to prepare for the disciples. Even more interesting is that the many rooms, more specifically, should be understood as dwelling places. In other words, Jesus is preparing for his followers a permanent dwelling place with God. This should amaze us. Since the fallout in the garden, our sin has kept God at a distance. In the wilderness, God came and dwelt with his people in the tabernacle, but even then there was a distance between the people because of sin. Only once a year a priest could come and enter into the tabernacle, into the holies of, holy of holies, to be where God's presence was. Later in Israel's history, the presence of God rested in the temple, but because of their sin, God could no longer dwell among his people, and he removed his presence. Jesus assures his followers that through his work of preparation, they would be able to dwell with God. What is this work of preparation that would allow such an incredible reality? Jesus' preparation, of course, is his death, and resurrection. Jesus must die and must rise again in order for his believers to dwell with God. This is how what was once impossible becomes possible. Jesus, the Son of God, must die in our place and rise from the dead to defeat death. I will come again, Jesus says, and I will take you to myself. This is not the end for Jesus, but he will return from the dead so that the believers can join him wherever he is. And where does Jesus go? Jesus, upon his resurrection, Jesus, the Son of God, is seated at the right hand of God. Therefore, you and I, as believers in Jesus, 
upon his resurrection are also placed in the presence of God. Look at verse 4. And you know the way to where I'm going. The disciples looked at each other for answers. And neither of them could come up with a response because they were confused. So Thomas speaks up and says, Lord, how do we know where you, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? The disciples were confused yet again. They weren't tracking with what Jesus was saying. Like other times throughout Jesus' ministry, the disciples were a little confused. They didn't know what, who Jesus was and who, what his ministry was completely. And Jesus knew this. He wasn't particularly surprised at Thomas's question, but his comment, and you know the way, wasn't spoken in ignorance. It wasn't that Jesus was unaware of the disciples' confusion. Jesus was trying to say that they knew the way personally. They knew the way because he himself was the way. The one whom they had been with and had come to know was the way to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way that he is the, is the way and that he is the only means to which we can access God. Jesus is the truth in that he alone is a true revelation of God. And Jesus is the life, meaning that through him, believers can receive eternal life. Further, Jesus is saying that only in him can anybody find the greatest sense of truth and life. He is the standard of truth, and only in him can anyone live life abundantly. I am the way the truth, and the life. Jesus' claim is incredibly exclusive. According to Jesus, there are not several ways to be to the Father or to get to the Father. There is only one. Even in Jesus' day, the exclusivity of this statement was controversial. In Jesus' day, the Jewish faith for, was for... The goal of the Jewish faith was for all to come and approach God through faithful obedience to the law. For the Jewish people, the one way to come was by practicing his commands. Jesus says, despite all of the other approaches to following the law, there is only one way to know God, and that is through belief in me as a result of my death and resurrection. Jesus' words, no one can come to the Father except through me, are equally offensive today. Many cringe at the mention of this passage and believe it is arrogant to believe such a thing. How can you say there is only one way to God? And yet this is the truth of God. If it is true that God is holy and that our sin keeps us from God's presence, what can liberate us from the separation we experience? Can any religion followed with good intentions rescue us from the horrible separation that we have? Can my own earnest attempts to do the best that I can restore me to God? No. Only the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God, can rescue us from our wickedness, which has separated us from God. Our penalty 
is too great for any and every way to lead to God. There is only one way, and that is Jesus Christ. The significance of this encouragement was undeniable. For the first time, humanity can have a way to reach God and dwell with Him. Through Jesus, we are given the promise that we will be able to dwell with God. Through Jesus, we are given this promise, and this is a great encouragement for us. As we wonder whether there is any hope that we can see God and experience His glory, we ought to find encouragement in the reality that through Christ, we will be able to dwell with God. Pastor Tony Evans tells the story of Florence Chadwick. She was a world-class swimmer whose goal it was to do what no other woman had ever done. Her goal was to swim... Let me get the facts right here. Her goal was to swim 26 miles from Cantina Island, California, to the California mainland. 26 miles in the Pacific Ocean. And so she got into the ocean. Boats surrounded her, wanting her to succeed. And she began to swim. Hour after hour, she swam. It got to the point where it got very foggy and it was dark where she was swimming. And it was so dark that she could barely see her hands in front of her as she swam. But she continued to swim. Hour after hour. After swimming for 16 hours, Florence waved to the boats. I quit. I can't do it. It's too far. So she got into the boat, discouraged, convinced that she couldn't, it couldn't be done. And when she got into the boat, she looked out and saw that the shore was only half a mile away. She quit too soon. The darkness caused her to not continue. Two months later, Florence decided to try it again. And after 12 hours, the fog covered the sky once again. It was even worse than it was the first time she tried to swim. Amazingly, Florence continued to swim despite the fog. She made it to the shore. Not only did she make it to the shore, but she made it two hours more or faster than the world record at the time. So Florence victoriously gets up onto the main shore and someone asks her, how did you do it? How was it that what was once impossible for you was now possible in such a short amount of time? She looked at them and said, when I was swimming, I kept the shore of California in my mind. It was a picture there and I didn't lose sight of where I was going. I could handle the trip regardless of what came. You see, like Florence, you and I are surrounded by darkness. This darkness of the world can be debilitating and can cause us to wave our hands in submission and say, I quit. I can't do it. But when Jesus' encouragement is at the forefront of our minds, we can persevere. Just like Florence persevered through the fog, you and I can persevere and be encouraged that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us so that we can dwell with God. Philip, one of the disciples, is enthusiastic in the response 
in his response to Jesus' declaration. He says, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Philip understands that Jesus has some sort of special relationship with God and pleads with him to reveal God. Jesus, you've got VIP access. Bring us in. Let us see the Father. Look at Jesus' response with me, starting in verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus tells the disciples that through him they have been able to know God. Since Jesus and the Father are so intimately connected, to know the Son is to know the Father. Philip's response is inconsistent with all that Jesus has taught and shown the disciples. After all this time, they had yet to recognize the relationship between Jesus and God. In the beginning of John's Gospel, John describes Jesus as the Word. He says, the Word was in the beginning. The Word was God. And the Word was with God. But the disciples did not yet understand this. They did not yet understand that through Jesus, God could be seen and known. So Jesus explains to them, to see me is to see God. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. Such is the case that in meeting and knowing Jesus, the disciples had genuinely met with and had known the Father. They're so closely linked that, they're, that while they are separate, they are at the same time one. You can distinguish between the two, but at the same time, they're wrapped together in unity. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Philip's question is unnecessary because he had already received that which he had asked for. Jesus had been revealing the Father to him this entire time. Jesus' entire mission has been to reveal the Father. His words and his works all point to and make God known. I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus is the servant of God sent to do whatever pleases the Father and brings Him glory. In the form of a final appeal, Jesus petitions His disciples and says, Trust me. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And if not in my own words, look at the works that I've performed and believe on account of them. Think back again to all those miracles that Jesus performed. All of these testify to the reality that Jesus was acting on the Father's behalf and revealing his glory on earth. So Jesus first encouraged the disciples saying, "I go so that you so that through me you can dwell with God." Second, he says, "Through me you have come to know God." And finally, he says, "Like me, even more than me you will do things that glorify God. 
through Jesus, believers will be able to do things which glorify God on earth. Look with me, beginning in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus moves from his own works to the works of the disciples and says that they too will be able to glorify God. Anyone who believes in Jesus will not only be joined with him in being able to dwell with God and to know God, but they also will be able to do the works of Jesus. And what are these works? The Gospel of John, as we mentioned earlier, describes several miraculous works that Jesus did throughout his ministry, all of which testify to Jesus' connection to the Father and his mission to glorify God through his works. Moreover, Jesus says, the works that his followers will do will be even greater than his works. Jesus, who healed the blind and the sick, fed the multitudes and raised Lazarus from the dead, tells the believers that they will be able to do greater works than he. Wow. Does this mean that you and I as believers in Jesus should expect to perform all kinds of miracles like Jesus and even greater than Jesus? Does it mean that since Jesus fed 5,000, we should expect to feed 10,000? Does it mean that since Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, you and I should expect to raise Mary and Martha as well? Not necessarily. The pattern that we follow is not necessarily the miraculous nature of the works but what the works communicate about God in this world. The significance of Jesus' works was not that they were miraculous, because miracles were just signs that pointed to who he was and why he came. More important was what these acts proclaimed. They proclaimed that light had come to overcome darkness and God's glory could be felt on the earth. Through Jesus and the works that he did in, this, in his life, God was glorified. And by the demonstration of his glory, darkness and sin were being defeated. I don't say these things to permanently exclude the possibility of miracles. What I hope to communicate is that these are not the only works that are in view here. Miracles serve to demonstrate that Jesus was the Son of God, but in many cases didn't, didn't inspire authentic discipleship. John 12, verse 27 says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. In contrast, after Jesus' death and resurrection, the disciples and those who followed them are able to preach and act in ways that transform the lives of hundreds thousands, and today millions. But in case we lose sight of Christ, the emphasis must always be on Jesus. It is not that Jesus is resigning from office so that those more capable can come in to bring about change. 
Jesus is still the one who is working to glorify God. It is through prayer to Jesus that the followers of Jesus are able to do great things. Through his death, resurrection, and continued work from his place, Christ works through us to glorify God. The emphasis on Jesus going to the Father in verse 12 is to teach that it is his death and resurrection that allow this empowerment to take place. At the cross, death and darkness are defeated. Therefore, Jesus' followers can wage war on evil until the day of Christ's return when he himself would defeat evil once and for all. It's a new day. And those who believe in Jesus can follow in Jesus' strength to glorify God with their works. So what do these works look like? One commentator notes that Jesus is inviting the disciples to imitate the things that he did in his life and ministry. These greater works that these disciples do include evangelism, teaching, and deeds of mercy and compassion. The point is that we aren't looking, for, uh, looking to change water to wine or to feed thousands with just a few slices of bread, but we are looking to glorify God by living in a way that reflects God's victory over death. Through Jesus, we become the demonstration of God's glory. So what does this look like? It is seen in the way that we imitate Jesus in loving one another and serving those around us. Christ humbled himself. Even though he was the Son of God, and he served his disciples. Just a few hours before this speech, Jesus sat before the disciples and took the role of a servant and began to wash his disciples' feet. And Peter reacted. He said, no, Lord, you cannot do this. But Jesus said, I'm doing this to show you how you are to serve one another. You and I are not greater than Jesus. And if Jesus was able to humble himself to serve his disciples, shouldn't you and I do the same? Wouldn't it glorify God if you and I treated one another like Jesus treated his disciples? I think about my own life. And I see countless opportunities to serve others. At home, I can serve my wife by putting my own work down and listening to her more intently. I can serve her by finding other opportunities like choosing careful words to encourage her. And I also think of countless opportunities that I have and that we have as the body of Christ to serve one another here. You and I could visit each other whenever we're sick. You and I can call each other if we haven't seen each other in a while from, and people have been absent from church life. Hey, I haven't seen you on Sunday mornings. What's going on? Can I pray for you? Can I encourage you? In most cases, glorifying God by treating others like Christ treated his disciples means that we have to stop caring about ourselves more than we care about others. You and I glorify God and demonstrate his glory to this world when we imitate Christ in loving and serving one another. We also glorify God by telling others about the truth of Christ. God's truth is good news. 
especially when we consider how dark this world can be. What good news that Jesus, the Son of God, has made a way for us to know God and enables us to see God's glory here on earth. And I know that it can be intimidating to talk to people. People can be scary. Despite our good news, they might reject us and call us ignorant or bigots. But that's okay. When we go and speak God's truth, Jesus strengthens us and gives us the courage that we need through the Holy Spirit. Another way that we glorify God by our actions is by serving others who do not know Christ. Through our kind acts, we as a church can glorify God and demonstrate God's victory over darkness by acting kindly towards others who do not know Christ. Throughout history, it has been the church that has responded to the great tragedies and injustices in this world. We should continue to love and serve others, not as a way to feel good about ourselves, but as a way to testify to God's glory. Jesus told the disciples that through him they would dwell with God. He also said that by knowing him they have come to know God. And finally, Jesus taught that through him they would be able to do great works which demonstrate God's glory on earth. Before Jesus, you and I were without hope. We were the blind man fumbling to find the way to God. We were the large crowd starved for truth and hungry for God. We were Lazarus, dead in our sin and wrapped in the cloths of darkness. But Jesus became the way. Jesus became the truth. Jesus became our life. And through Jesus, our hopelessness can be cured. Our perception of the dark of the world as a dark and evil place is shattered because through Jesus we can see God and we can experience his work that he is doing to restore all of creation. Through Jesus we can fully know God and experience God's glory on earth. All we must do is believe. Trust in God. Trust in Jesus because one day he will return and make all things new for the glory of God the Father. Is there any hope that we can see God and experience his glory? Yes. Through Jesus, we can know God and experience God's glory on earth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that when we were in desperate need of salvation, you became our way. You humbled yourself and took the form of man. You lived the perfect life and you died for our sins and you resurrected from the dead with the promise that we too will be able to resurrect and have eternal life with you. We thank you for all that you've done for us, and we thank you for the hope that you provide for us. Thank you for that, Lord. You are the way, the truth, and the life. We give you honor and praise. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.